From number five chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin. This short episode of the planning podcast is a quick fire review, bringing you some practical updates of what's been going on during the last few weeks. I'm going to be joined by Leanne Buckley-Thompson, Oliver Lawrence and Howard Leithhead, all barristers at number five chambers. Each of them is going to tell you in brief about a short case or event uh, which we think might be of some interest to you on a practical basis. It's coming up quickly. Here it is. Hello, good morning, Leanne, Howard, Oliver. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Richard. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Hello, good morning, good morning. Now we're going to whiz through a few top topics which have caught your attention during the last few days. Leanne, go for it. Yeah, so Richard, an interesting case uh, for local authorities and actually developers alike uh, is the case of DB Symmetry Limited and Swindon Borough Council. Uh, For those that are looking for some bedtime reading, uh, the citation that they want to be looking for is 2020 um, EWCA Civ 1331. And of course, Richard, you'll know that this involves our own Richard Humphreys QC, who acted successfully for the appellant developer. So congratulations to him. Uh, But in terms of of, of what this case really does for us then, it's an outline planning permission for an employment development site, which included landscaping and also a new junction to the A420. And would you believe 50 conditions in relation to that permission? So not a small number. Now, in terms of this case, only really concerned with condition 39. Now, that condition dealt with roads and required that the proposed access roads were to be constructed so that they ensured that each unit was served by a fully functional highway, with the reason for that being to ensure that the development was served by an adequate means of access to the public highway in the interest of highway safety. So the dispute that arose out of that was whether or not that particular condition required the developer to dedicate the roads as public highways or if conversely, it only regulated the physical attributes of the roads. Now, it might be unsurprising that the local authority were of the former view and the developer, supported actually by the Secretary of State, um, was of the latter view. So the developer had applied for a Section 192 certificate that formation and use of the private access roads as private access roads would be lawful. And that had been refused by the local authority. And it had gone to an inspector on appeal who allowed it. So found ourselves then at a statutory review where the local authority was successful. That's a little bit of the history as to why we're in the Court of Appeal in the first place. And I'm not going to bore you with with all of the details there. I think we want to look for the practical points that flow from that and what the court said. So what that was, was that a condition requiring a developer to dedicate land that they own as public highway without compensation would be unlawful. There's no difference, essentially, between dedicating a road as highway and transferring the land itself for highway use. The power to impose conditions is narrower uh, than the power to enter into planning agreements or accept a planning obligation. So if you can't sever the condition, essentially, that the planning permission can't stand. Uh, The case is also helpful, I would say, Richard, because it gives you a reminder that when you're interpreting conditions, you're looking at the reasonable reader test. Of course, it's an objective exercise and you're looking at the natural and ordinary meaning. But where the court um, assists us further is to emphasise, actually, that if the court's faced with a choice between two different realistic interpretations, it's going to prefer the interpretation that results in the clause or contract being valid. So, of course, here, the condition, if it required the developer to dedicate land owned as public highway without compensation, would be unlawful. And that's obviously not going to be the option that the court's going to choose if it has another realistic interpretation presented to it. 
Now, the other issue here with Condition 39 was that it didn't expressly require dedication, which obviously is a necessary prerequisite if you're looking to dedicate land as public highway. There's no express reference to granting rights of passage either, and it wasn't even clear which parts it would apply to. So not not really great in terms of trying to do what the local authority wanted it to do. And essentially, the reasonable reader wouldn't then be able to suppose that the local authority intended to grant permission subject to an invalid condition, which, which makes sense I think. So three main bullet points then that flow from that in terms of practical points. First this reminder of the validation principle. Second telling us what would make a lawful result is what the court is concentrating on of those realistic options. And then third really um, just clarity in drafting ensuring that when you're um, composing these conditions you're thinking very carefully about how they might be interpreted and where you might end up if there are any errors. Leanne that's amazing. And you've managed to get it into three takeaway points. Validation principle. You've introduced us to, thirdly there, the, the absolutely startling idea that these things should be drafted carefully. I know, sure. It's, extra- <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? The, the rate at which conditions cases keep on coming forward. If you think through the last couple of years... Time and time again, important conditions cases keep coming forward. I'm absolutely certain that Howard and Oliver will not have been able to find any court of appeal case that has anything to do <laughs> with conditions. But do you have it? Is there anything else that's come your way that you want to mention, Leanne, or shall we pass directly to Howard? I think, given the uh, case that I've just discussed, it might be helpful to go to Howard and then I can drop in perhaps at the end with, with this extra important bit of news that we have. The bonus track. Indeed. We'll, we'll bring you back in for a bonus track. <laughs> so, so Howard, I, I'm quite sure you've not found any Court of Appeal case that deals with conditions. Well, Richard, would you believe that very recently there has been such a case in the Court of Appeal? Uh, it's called Smith and Castle Point Borough Council. Would you like me to tell you about it? Go on. John, convince me. Well, the background to this case is that the appellant, Mr Smith, was a property developer who sought to promote land next to a scrapyard. And he objected to the grant of planning permission for a boundary wall on the scrapyard. The plans indicated that the wall would be five metres in height. Uh, The scrapyard benefited from an earlier planning permission, which established its lawful use as a scrapyard. And although the earlier permission didn't include a condition restricting how much waste could be stored, the business was subject to a waste disposal licence that stipulated that waste could be stored no higher than five metres. The appellant, Mr Smith, was very concerned that the scrapyard was contaminated, that there had been waste piled up as high as eight metres previously, and that sometimes it had spilled over the boundary. The appellant raised numerous grounds of appeal, but the main issues were first whether the officer who completed the delegated report should have considered the risk of contamination in line with various guidance documents that were referred to. Second, whether the officer failed to consider an objection made by the appellant that the wall would bring about a risk of intensification of use. And third, whether the officer also failed to appreciate that there was a power to impose a condition restricting the height that scrap could be stored in the entire scrapyard. And this was despite the fact that the original planning commission had not included any such condition. Mm. Well, what do you make of that, Oliver? Uh, Well, Richard, the the main grounds and argument that were advanced for the Court of Appeal uh, concerned intensification of use. And the judge found that it was wholly unclear how the proposed wall might cause intensification of use at the scrapyard site in this case, despite what the objector asserted. 
It was not at all clear, he said, how allowing a wall of five metres height would allow storage at a greater height. Although that was asserted by the planning objection, he said quite how such an implication arises is never actually really explained. And in this case, the objector said that in the past, there had been occasions where scrap was stacked more than five metres high already. If that is so, the judge said, there's no obvious reason why a boundary wall of five metres height would facilitate further such use at the site. Turning to whether the officer had failed to appreciate that there was a power to impose a condition, the judge said that the power to impose a condition on an existing use of a site that already has planning permission was established in the case of Penwith District Council versus Secretary of State for the Environment. But in this case was distinguished from that of Penwith because here the proposed development, the wall, was not designed to intensify the use, unlike in Penwith. And the Penwith power can only be used to impose conditions that are related to the development being permitted. Since the wall was not designed to intensify the use, and since it was unclear how the wall would bring about intensification, any condition limiting the height of the wall would not relate to the development being permitted. And so that's how the Penworth power simply just wouldn't apply in this case. And so uh, in sum, the judge concluded that when the officer's report was read in full, the planning officer had considered the objection based on intensification of use, but had given no weight to it, as he was entitled to do. Well, Oliver, thank you. I shall now store away in my mind the idea of the Penwith power and deploy it at a suitable moment. But Howard, did the judge have any advice for what really should have been done by the appellant in respect of the contamination Yes, Richard, that's absolutely right. The judge did have some advice. It's this, that if you've got a grievance, you need to deal with it in the right way. Uh, Mr Smith was concerned about uh, contamination and and perhaps with good cause. Uh, The judge pointed out, though, that what he should have done is notified the Environment Agency and then followed it up with a judicial review claim uh, if his notification was met with unjustified inaction. Well, there we go. Thank you very much for bringing us up to date on both of those Court of Appeal cases where conditions really are very much in play again. But we were promised a bonus track, were we not, Leanne? You were indeed, Richard, and I'm going to give you it. Um, Those listening may be aware that Christopher Young QC and I succeeded in an appeal in relation to an extra care development in Oldbourne earlier this year. Extra care is, of course, a type of older person development that's really important And I say older person because it's not necessarily the case that developments that provide care as part of the package are focused on those that are frail and elderly. We know that we have a need for housing in the UK and that spans across all demographics. The MPPF and the PPG emphasise now as well the, the critical nature of that. So it's interesting that we, on the 21st of October, have seen a report from the British Property Federation in association with Cushman and Wakefield into housing and care for older people defining the sector. What that does is it really emphasises the really acute lack of housing with care, which still allows residents to live independently, so extra care development essentially um, and others like it. 
And it provides three recommendations for the government. First, uh, that they should be setting up a housing for older people task force to recognise and promote the benefits of purpose-built housing for older people, with a particular focus on housing with care, that they should be providing local authorities with the resources to help plan for that sort of accommodation with a local need in mind. Secondly, that they should also be developing and publishing a national strategy um, for such housing, reinforcing the national significance of it, um, and ensuring that all forms of appropriate housing is provided for older people as a key part, um, notice key part, of national and local housing targets. And then finally, uh, and Richard, you may well be interested in this um, in particular with your environmental work, that priority should be given to projects that exhibit a commitment to achieving the UK zero carbon ambition. So an emphasis there that there should be measures to fast track projects that exhibit high sustainability standards whilst also addressing that very pressing um, demand for housing for an ageing population. So Richard, I think that's that's important because although you know it's just a report, it, it isn't policy or anything of that kind, it's just the further emphasis of the importance of that type of housing that we're not just thinking when we're looking at housing for older people about the traditional care homes and that there should be more choice and more breadth of the types of housing that's available and this is something that really I think has been all the more key with the recent and and continuing COVID-19 pandemic where of course the accommodation of those that might need to shield is ever more important. Got it so that's area and that particular topic area is is moving on quickly isn't it it's an area of planning which has an interaction with the pandemic as you just highlighted well that's that's fantastic thank you very much leanne for that bonus can i say team and that's been so helpful to have that little pit stop bringing together a few things which have been happening very recently what say you shall we do this again 17th of november shall we meet again indeed sounds good so I, 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 so yeah, I, yeah, that 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 would be great. Thank you. That sounds great to me, Richard. I'm very pleased. Uh, the enthusiasm comes through. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was trying to work out how to unmute myself, and then discovered I wasn't actually on mute. Yeah, me too. That's exactly what I was doing. I, it's a nightmare. <laughs> well, there we go. Till the seventeenth. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm going to stop recording. Thank you. Thanks, right, Richard. Thanks, thanks, Richard. We hope you like that. Let us know. We'll do some more. Maybe tag them on to the end of podcasts, which are currently in preparation. Shortly, we're going to be turning to a particular element of design, design codes in the context of the white paper, very much assisted by Professor Robert Adam. And we're going to be turning also to a particular question on housing land supply. We're going to be looking at the question does increasing supply really affect affordability? That's what's coming up in the planning podcast over the next couple of weeks. Look out for them. If you like them, let us know. In the meantime, stay safe and goodbye. <laughs>